0: everyone. Um, Let me uh, get going um, just while people are are taking a seat and everything. Um, You're very welcome today to Gospel in the City. It's great to see you. We, I think, are the the people who have not been allowed a half-term holiday, probably, so uh, commiserations on that. Uh, But it's good to see you. Uh, We're we're continuing this mini-series that we've been looking at over last week, this week, and then we'll finish up next week in John chapter 4, this famous conversation uh, where Jesus encounters this woman at the well with this... um, rather messy past. Uh, delighted to have Lee Campbell back uh, to speak on this passage today as we look at real worship. Uh, Lee's the pastor of Strandtown Baptist Church. He's a kind of a regular friend here at Gospel of the City. And Lee, thank you very much for coming. Um, it's great to have you. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, in a few minutes, I'm going to read the passage and, and pray, and then I'll invite Lee up to speak. But just before that, can I just draw your attention to the, to the handout there and to a special event that's coming up in two weeks' time? Um, that we're calling real life, question uh, mark, real life. Um, on the 6th of March, we've got Jeremy Marshall um, coming over to join us uh, from London. Jeremy was, um, uh, had a career in banking and was formerly the CEO of Hawes Bank, which was, uh, it's one of the most well-known private banks in London. Um, but a few years ago, he was diagnosed with incurable cancer. And so he's since resigned from being the, uh, the CEO of that. Um, and he's he's coming over and he's basically willing to have a really honest conversation with us about facing death and how he as a Christian uh, feels about facing death. You can see, um, if you check the email this week, you'll see a link to a video where he's done a, a similar event in London. And you can kind of see the, the what the man is like and you can see his faith and you can see how honest he'll be with us about, about what he's uh, experiencing and, and, and looking ahead to. And um, we're really hoping that will be something that will be of interest to, to a wide variety of our colleagues. Um, somebody who's obviously got uh, good business experience and has got this interesting story to tell. So we're hoping that you might uh, be able to find that an easy way to invite people to come along um, on a Wednesday lunchtime for that um, for that event. And then we're going to follow that up on, on the 13th of March with uh, more of a gospel presentation, uh, looking at uh, John chapter 4, the healing of the official son. Uh, where Jesus makes this wonderful promise to this this father who's facing the loss of his son, Uh, Jesus says, your son will live. Just a remarkable promise. And uh, we find that that is a promise that Jesus is able to come good on. Um, So we're hoping that that two-part event will be something that will be really uh, compelling for people to think about the possibility of real life. So do want to commend that to you and just ask that you'd be maybe holding that in your prayers and particularly thinking about whether there's a, a colleague or a friend that you might be able to invite along to that. Okay, well, let's turn then to today's passage, uh, John chapter 4. Um, you can find that on page uh, 11 or 10 of our, of our little Gospels there. And we're going to be, or, yeah, but page 11, we'll pick, pick the story up at verse 16. So remember, Jesus has encountered this woman at the well. They've had a conversation about water. And Jesus has talked about offering the gift of water that wells up to eternal life. So we begin reading again there at verse 16 at the top of page 11. Jesus said to the woman, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is now here, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Well, let's pray as uh, we come to have a look at that uh, little section of the Bible. Uh, Our Father, we thank you for um, the chance to meet up together today in the middle of our working weeks. Uh, We thank you for the provision uh, that you've given us. Uh, Thank you for the food and drinks that we're able to enjoy Uh, Thank you for all the the hustle and bustle of the city and all the hard work that goes on on in it. And thank you, Father, for uh, the way that you speak to us and you uh, tell us about what it means to live for you. We pray that you would uh, speak again to us this lunchtime uh, by your Holy Spirit. We pray that you'd help us to know what it means to worship you in spirit and truth and send us back into our workplaces this afternoon uh, ready to do that. Uh, We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Okay, it's lovely to be back with you uh, again uh, this afternoon. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, we have a tricky little passage uh, this, this uh, lunchtime to look at, um, but hopefully with God's help we'll be able to make some sense of it. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I certainly have had it a number of times just even over the last few weeks, where you, you, talk, you meet someone and then they say, oh, I met someone who knows you. Uh, and I don't know how you react when you hear that. Uh, I usually feel a little sense of growing dread, oh no, oh no. Uh, who was that person? Uh, what period of my life was that person? <laughs> did they know me? Uh, what did they say? Was it good? Was it bad? Um, I, I Maybe I'm on my own there with that. Uh, but I think that reflects something deep in all of us that there is things in our past that we would really like to stay in the past that we wouldn't want anyone else uh, to know about. Uh, A friend of mine put it this way recently, and I thought it was very helpful to kind of crystallize our thinking. He said, imagine you have someone who knows you intimately, who knows you intimately, and they were asked to honestly write down on a couple of sheets of paper uh, a, a very detailed description of you and pop that in an envelope, right? Pop that in an envelope. Uh, would you be comfortable if this was your envelope for me to open it and read it to everybody? Uh, And I suspect if you're anything like me, you probably would would actually be quick to leave the building if that was about to happen, uh, because you know that there's things on on those sheets of paper, if the person who knows you intimately was describing you truthfully, uh, that you wouldn't be proud of. that would be, for example, that maybe describe your bad temper. Uh, or they might describe uh, your thoughtless attitude to other people or your selfishness. So they'll be described the, uh, the times that you've held on to grudges, uh, describe the times that you've tended towards gossip or told lies to cover your back. Uh, or even as I describe all those things, you may be thinking, well, actually, that's, that, that doesn't come close. My past, my mess, is, is much more uh, shameful, embarrassing than even those things. Uh, Well, what we see in this little passage uh, this afternoon is someone who has a past that they'd rather conceal um, what happens when someone like that meets Jesus, what happens when someone like that uh, meets Jesus. What we've had in uh, John's gospel, in John chapter three, and in John chapter four, we've got two very famous encounters with Jesus, uh, and John, I think, deliberately puts them side by side. Uh, inviting us as readers to compare and contrast uh, the two characters and the two conversations. Uh, There's Nicodemus in chapter 3. There's then this woman in chapter 4. And there's some very obvious differences. He's a man. She's a woman. Uh, He's a Jew. uh, She's a Samaritan. But then there's a whole bunch of other differences as well. He's uh, a religious expert, and she's an immoral woman. Uh, He is well-respected by all. She is someone who, reading between the lines, is a bit of a social outcast. Uh, He's someone who appears to know all the answers, uh, and she is someone whose behavior invites all the questions. Uh, He uh, is uh, someone um, who, again, you would expect to be in the kingdom of God, and we discover that he's not. Uh, And she's someone you expect Jesus to reject, Uh, but actually as someone who is welcomed uh, into uh, a relationship with God. Uh, In in many ways, if you were to summarize the the two conversations, if you you learn from this conversation with Nicodemus that no one is so good that they don't need Jesus, and then in the conversation with this woman, you find that uh, no one is so bad that they will not be welcomed uh, by Jesus And so for all of us who have our own history and our own past things that we are embarrassed and ashamed of uh, in our history, um, what we discover when people like this woman, when people like you and me encounter Jesus, we see two things, and I put them on your sheet there, we see two things when people like us encounter Jesus. And that's what Jesus invites us to today, uh, to encounter him. Now, the first thing we discover is the total knowledge that Jesus possesses, the total knowledge that Jesus possesses. Let's give you a little, so if you weren't here last week, a little bit of a summary of where we've, we've come from. Uh, this conversation happens against a background of religious uh, and ethnic tension. Uh, Jews and Samaritans hated each other, and there's all sorts of reasons for that. Uh, in the history, uh, the northern region of Israel was, was conquered by the Assyrian Empire, and the way the Assyrians uh, tried to manage and avoid um, uprisings were to move people around, to to move people around between their colonies. Uh, And so many of the Israelite people were deported, uh, moved off into exile, and other foreigners were... were, uh, placed in northern Israel. And what happened, I over time, was that the, the, the peasant Jewish farmers that remained intermarried with these foreigners, and they became a mixed race that became known as the Samaritans. Then in the fourth century, um, after years, the, the Samaritan people pretty much rejected most of the Old Testament, except for the first four books uh, of our Bible the books of Moses, and in the 4th century they set up a rival temple uh, in Mount Gerizim, which seems to be the mountain that this woman's referring to here. And so if you were a Jew, you regarded Samaritans as a mongrel race of heretics, I think that's a pretty good description, uh, to be even more despised than, than Gentiles. And so it's no surprise then that the woman is absolutely shocked when Jesus speaks to her Uh, and asks her for a drink. Um, We see that this initiates a conversation between Jesus and this woman, uh, where Jesus speaks to her about spiritual realities and claims to be able to offer her living water, living water. Uh, Jesus goes on to explain, he's not talking about H2O, uh, he's he's using a metaphor, a picture from the Old Testament, um, describing the overflow of God's goodness that can bring cleansing to a human heart uh, and uh, well up to eternal life. Uh, He is offering to satisfy the deepest longings of her soul, the longing for a cleansed conscience, eternal life, a relationship with God. Uh, The woman doesn't get it, clearly. There's confusion. She still thinks H2O. She thinks Jesus is claiming to be an expert well digger. Uh, And so Jesus very graciously, very kindly uh, goes on to uh, explain and reveal who he really is by telling her who she really is. And what he does is he reveals and reads out to her some of the contents of her envelope, some of the things that she uh, has done in the past that, that he couldn't have known uh, and yet that is exactly what he says. He knows that she's had five husbands, very specific, five, and that the man she's living with now and sleeping with now is not her husband. He knows all about it. He knows ev- all the details, all the sordid details he's aware of. Um, now, that's a socially awkward moment, if there ever was one. Someone been able to, to list out your uh, shameful, sordid past. Uh, Jesus is spot on. And then that invites the question, well, who is this guy then? No stranger could possess that sort of information. Uh, She suspects initially he's a prophet. um, But then by verse 26, I think the way she asks the question or makes the statement, uh, I think she's beginning to suspect that he might be the Christ, the Messiah, the long-awaited rescuer ruler that God had promised. Um, But what we see here in this man, Jesus, uh, is someone who possesses divine supernatural knowledge. And again, if you've been reading all the way through John's gospel, that's no surprise because Jesus is none other than God made flesh. God who's become one of us um, I don't know what you think about, uh, if you, or if you've ever even considered, what God knows. Um, theologians refer to that that idea, what God knows, as omniscience. It's a technical word meaning knowing everything, knowing all. Um, but I, I think that technical word maybe doesn't really ca- carry the, the impact that maybe we, we might expect. So try this on for size. Um, look, I don't have a PhD. I don't know if any of you guys have PhDs. I, I know nothing about PhDs, but... I did a Google search yesterday uh, on the average length of time it would take you to get a PhD. And the average length of time PhD students work every week is about 50 hours. Uh, the average length it takes to write a PhD is about four years on average. I know there's some longer and some shorter. About four years. So you do, you do the maths, that's uh, with holidays. Uh, that's about 9,600 hours, okay. Now, that got me thinking, well, how many, how many PhDs are there out there? Uh, and so again, I did a Google search, and all I could find was the, the number of PhDs currently in the United States of America. That's 2.9 million PhDs in America. And so now you, you do your, get your calculator out again. How long would it take you to get 2.9 million PhDs? Well, according to my calculator, it would take you 27 billion 840 million years to get that sort of knowledge, right? That's just one country. Uh, That's just current PhDs. Uh, uh, One country on one dinky little planet and one pokey little galaxy in a very, very, very big universe. And the Bible claims that God possesses all the knowledge, all the knowledge that there is to possess, And what we are told in John's gospel is that that God, the creator God who knows everything, has taken on a human nature, has stepped onto the real stage of real human history, become one of us so that he might meet us. And he knows everything. He knows all that knowledge and yet he still can remember your personal details, her personal details. He knows your personal details this afternoon. This is the knowledge then that Jesus possesses. He knows everything. And if we stop there, that would be incri- we would want to run from Jesus if he's someone who knows everything. But actually that's not the reaction you're supposed to have uh, as you get to the end, because uh, this leads us to the second big idea of this passage, uh, and that is the true worship that Jesus enables, the true worship. That Jesus enables. Now, I used to always misread this conversation uh, at this point um, where the woman uh, in uh, verse 28 uh, seems to dramatically change the subject, or in verse 20, sorry, seems to dramatically change the subject. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Uh, I used to think Jesus has got a bit too close, a bit too personal, and so what she does is she uses some, um, you know, evasive um, tactics to try to do a bit of a ploy to change the subject onto something a bit safer. Let, let's talk about theology then, if you're a prophet. But as I've studied this passage, I've become increasingly convinced. I think this woman's question is absolutely sincere. It's absolutely sincere. Uh, what she is saying is she is saying, I see that you are from God. And if that is true, then you can answer the most important question anyone can ever ask. And that is, where do I go to deal with my mess? Where can I go to find forgiveness? Where can I go to connect with God? Now, you Jews, you say, I gotta go to that that place in Jerusalem. Uh, My ancestors say it's here in Gerizim, Mount Gerizim. Where should we go? What should we do? And what we see in Jesus' reply Um, is we we see the intention of his heart, I think. We see that his intention is never to expose and humiliate her. But knowing all her sordid past, what he does is he invites her to come into this new kind of relationship with God. Um, He's saying, look, by the way, the Jews were right. Jerusalem was God's place, chosen place of worship. Uh, that's, that's true. Salvation is from the Jews. The Jews were right. But look, all of that's irrelevant now. Forget about mountains and temples. All of that's irrelevant now. I have come so that you would be able to worship God whenever you want, wherever you want. Um, now, I, I don't know if you guys have been studying all the way through. Have you have you studied from chapter 2? Because if you've studied from chapter 2, you'll have learned that that actually Jesus... What the temple was a picture of, Jesus is the reality. The temple was the visual aid. Jesus has now come to to fulfill everything the temple pointed to. You see, the temple pointed to and was a picture of God's presence with his people. The temple was the place where God's word was taught by the priests. And the temple was the place where sacrifices of atonement were made and sin was dealt with, and forgiveness was received. And what we see is that Jesus is saying, what you really need is not a place to go, but a person who can enable you to worship God in an acceptable way. And I am that person. I am that person. I can enable you to worship God in a way that he will accept you. It's, in a, it's Again, it's a remarkable claim. Knowing all that he knows to make that offer is shocking. And what are three characteristics? i put them on your sheet. Hopefully this is not too dense, but, but three characteristics then on your sheet of what do true worshipers look like? What do true worshipers look like in this new age that Jesus has ushered in with his coming, with his life, death, uh, and resurrection, three things I think Jesus says he comes uh, to enable true worship, and the Father is seeking those who worship in spirit and in truth. What does that mean then? I think it means three things: first, a true worshiper is someone who will ex- who will experience the presence of God through the spirit. Uh, Jesus goes on to say that the Father is spirit uh, he doesn 't have a physical body like us, um, so we can rightly say God is here. We can rightly say God is here, even though we don't see him with our eyes, because God is spirit. Now, my sister's currently on holidays in Germany, in Berlin, uh, and she can also say simultaneously, God is here in Berlin. And look, as Christians, we are not saying just God is really, really, really big, uh, and his left elbow is here, and his right foot is in uh, Berlin, not at all. God exists in a totally different way than we do, which means he is fully here, fully present, and he's fully present in Berlin and, ev- and, and in Belfast and Berlin and Beijing and, and everywhere else that I can think of that begins with B. You get the idea. God is everywhere simultaneously, fully present everywhere. He exists differently from we do. And that creates a problem because if God is spirit, then we cannot know him, work him out with our five senses of touch and taste and sight and sound. If we are to know God, then we're going to need uh, who is spirit. Then we are going to need his spirit to reveal the truth uh, of, of who God is, uh, his presence, his power, his reality, his love to us uh, in a real way. And so true worshipers are those who are dependent on the Holy Spirit and so if you and I want to know God and his presence in our lives, all we've got to do is pray and ask that the Holy Spirit would give us that, if I can use the term, sixth sense, that sense of uh, our, our, our faith to perceive uh, the reality of God. And true worshipers are those who have been given that gift. The Holy Spirit reveals the presence of God to them. True worshippers experience the presence of God through the Spirit. True worshippers also know the truth about God through the Son. If, if, if we can't rely on our sight and our, our ears and our, our, our touch and smell and so on to, to discern God, how can we know the truth about Him? How can we know the truth about Him? Surely we're left guessing. Well, John in his Gospel says, no way. Right from chapter 1, he's been telling you. uh, In chapter 1, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, Spirit, but the only God who's at the Father's side has made him known. Jesus, who is fully divine, has taken on human nature, become one of us. And the eyewitnesses in real history wrote down what he said and what he did so that we can know God truly know the truth about God. We can know that God is loving because we saw Jesus acted out in his life. We saw that uh, his compassion, uh, we saw his, his healing touch. You, you see, and when you get to chapter 11, the tears that he sheds for his friends and with his friends. We can know that God is powerful as we see God's power channeled through the life of Jesus. Uh, We see him heal the sick, still storms, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. Uh, We can know the truth about God as we look at Jesus. And therefore, true worship, true worship is focused on Jesus. We come through Jesus to know God. Uh, And that is how God has designed it. We are dependent on the Spirit. We can know the truth because of the Son. But then, as you look at the life of Jesus... And you see the quality of his life. Uh, John also describes Jesus as the light of the world. Now, the light gives sight and illumination, but it also exposes, doesn't it? The light exposes the flaws. And uh, when we come into close contact with the light of the world, we're exposed. We're exposed. Um, and that leads us to the third idea for true, the third feature of true worshipers. They are those who receive the forgiveness of God through the cross. Jesus uses a weird phrase in, in verse 23 where he says, but an hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. What is he talking about? Well, all the way through John's gospel, Jesus is referring to his hour. So back in chapter two, at the wedding at Cana, when he talks to his mum, he says, "My R has not yet come." In chapter seven and eight, when he's about to be arrested, we're told that he, he they were not able to arrest him because his R had not yet come. In chapter twelve, when the Greeks come to see him for the first time, people from the nations come to see him for the first time. We are told that his R has come. Uh, and we get to—it f- becomes clear what they are from for chapter thirteen to the end of the book. The R is referring to the R of his death. And so, what we are being told here, uh, I think, is that while Jesus knows everything about us, while he knows everything, all my sordid past, all the mistakes I've made, the squalid thoughts I've thought, the cruel words uh, I've spoken, the, dece- the, the, the lies that I've spoken, the, the, the good things that I've left undone. He knows all of that. He knows all of that. But what does Jesus do with that knowledge? What does he do with that knowledge? He does not expose and condemn. What he does is he takes that knowledge all the way to the cross <coughs> And he dies for sinful people. He dies for sinful people. He takes the penalty that we deserve. And that means two things as I close. That means one, uh, we have a wonderful invitation to share. And we have wonderful assurance to receive. I'm assuming most of us are believers here. If you're not, then this invitation is also for you. If you're a believer, this is an invitation to share. The Father is seeking worshipers. While he knows everything, God knows everything about us. He's still seeking people to come and worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, And that means that we have a wonderful gift to offer, invitation to share with colleagues and friends. Um, We can say true worship, to have a real relationship with God, to know cleansing, to know eternal life, to know a relationship with God that begins now and lasts forever. It uh, doesn't depend on, on you. doesn't depend on you. It's re- Christianity is radically different from religion. It's not about religious rituals and things you need to do, but it depends on the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's accepting the truth about Jesus and relying on the work of Jesus. And when we do that, all those other benefits flow to us. What a wonderful invitation that we have to share. And then lastly, an incredible assurance Uh, for us to receive. I think we all would admit that we've all got our envelopes. We've all got our envelopes. And when we peek inside, every so often when we've been honest, we feel a sense of, uh, been unworthy, been a failure. I can't believe I've done it again. Um, And yet, when we come to this chapter, we are reminded that when we come back to God, honestly open our envelopes before Him uh, and share and confess what we've done, Uh, And when we say, please forgive me because of the work of Jesus and with your Holy Spirit, please help me to live a life that honors you. When we do that, we receive God's assessment on us to say, you are a true worshiper, an acceptable member of my people. So I think this is a wonderful story, a wonderful story that has a wonderful invitation to share and a wonderful uh, assurance to receive. Um, I'm going to hand back to to, to Sam at that point. I think think we're we're okay.
0: Would you just lead us in a prayer maybe? Oh, yeah, sure.
1: Happily, happily. Uh, Father, we want to thank you that this story has been recorded and preserved for us down through the years. We thank you that this uh, word uh, is the word you have for us, uh, and we just pray, please, that uh, we would find great assurance uh, in this story. Uh, Father, we all recognize that we do not deserve your favor and could never earn it, and yet wonderfully, through the work of your Spirit, through the revelation of your Son, and through the work uh, of his sacrificial death for us on the cross, we can be accepted, we can be welcomed into your family and have a place in your eternal home. Father, we pray that 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 knowledge would ignite joy in our hearts and give us courage uh, and compassion to share this good news with others that we come into contact with even today. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.